Hello and uh, good afternoon. My name is Nico Helle and this is Reboot 2030, the Democracy's Goals YouTube channel. Uh, today we'll be talking once more about, about the climate or climate change rather. And we'll be looking at the scope and limitations of impact investing. In other words, the impact investment can have, positive impact uh, investment can have on the climate. Um, by investing in green, en uh, green energy, yes, indeed, but also the green industries more generally into clean tech um, and into any industry really that can have a positive impact make contribution to the, the transition to a negative carbon economy. My guest today to discuss this topic is Yang Yin Koi. Yang Yin is head of impact and ESG at Vidya Equity based in Munich. Um, Yang Yin is uh, an economist, he's also a mechanical engineer, and he studied management, and he's got an undergraduate degree in politics, philosophy, and economics. He's worked previously at Monitor Deloitte and at 3M, and just before joining Media Equity, he worked at Finio, a not-for-profit uh, consultancy, looking at, again, ways of making the world a better place. Um, now, I can see that Yang Yin is here already, so... Uh, let me invite him in. Ah, Yang Yin, there you are. How are you? Uh -huh. Hello, Nico. I'm doing well. Thank you. How about yourself? Ah, I can see you much better now. You're kind of growing. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Excellent. Good to see you. Same here. You know, it's funny. Like, as your hair gets shorter, my hair seemed to get longer. Isn't that funny? Yeah, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> That's interesting. I'm so glad to have you to have you on Reboot 2030. Um, Yan Yin, uh, let me let me sort of jump straight in. Um, you've been you've been an impact advisor and advisor on impact investment now for some time, um, and uh, you can see both the opportunities that exist within impact investing, but you can also see its limitations. Uh, sometimes in a very frustrating way, because of course, some of these, most of these limitations are man-made. Um, but so let's, so let's start with the challenges. Um, what, what, what is kind of holding back impact investment? What is sort of diminishing the kind of returns that impact investment uh, promises, not just financially, but also uh, in terms of contributing to a faster accelerated transition uh, to a negative carbon economy? What are the main the main challenges that you see the main hurdles at present? Yeah. Um, so, thanks for for asking that question. And I think what applies to um, you know we, I'm looking at it mostly from a climate finance lens, right? But it also applies to uh, impact investing in general uh, because what we are mostly dealing with here are um, externalities, which are social costs that are currently not uh, priced by the market. And you have um, most visibly, uh, of course, climate related and greenhouse gas emissions related externalities. Uh, but externalities are, I think when we think about uh, everyday life, you know, there are uh, different uh, kinds of um, also positive contributions to society that are not really being valued or priced by the market, right? And there are other kinds of costs Think about health costs of tobacco and so on that have that are not properly priced. So externalities are actually uh, um, rather common, uh, but uh, what's what's surely um, 
specific about the climate crisis, the magnitude, the scale, the risks, the immense extreme risks that are now associated with these externalities. I think before that, or without the climate crisis, uh, it was still possible, you know, to move on, right, or to to engage in economic activities without, um, you know, being actually exposed to you know, extreme weather events and uh, causing uh, immense damages and so on. So, so this is certainly something that um, has a, um, a, a huge change over the past um, 30 years, uh, the recognition that we have, um, uh, you know, an externality that is, that is at a scale that is unimaginable almost. So, so this is a clear um, example for uh, a market failure. Right, and this is the most visible one, and um, uh, you can see it also in the uh, various recent uh, studies. You know, uh, there are interestingly, there has been a recent uh, study in Nature that estimated the social cost of carbon uh, based on the available evidence. Updated, the estimate came to a mean value of 185 um, US dollar per ton, and then also recently the um, EPA uh, proposed an updated uh, social cost of carbon. Uh, of around 190 US dollar per ton, um, compared to the current uh, value of of 51 US dollar per ton. So just imagine, um, it's it's uh, I think worthwhile to think about what does it mean? You know, the social cost of carbon of 190 uh, US dollar per ton um, implies that there are um, you know social costs damages um, uh, associated with that uh, uh, amount of emissions, and uh, um, we are currently. Uh, if we think about, uh, for example, fossil fuels, uh, oil, uh, crude oil, uh, two barrels roughly account for one ton. You know, currently at a price of 80 US dollar per barrel, you know, two barrels sell for 106 US dollar, but that does not include the 190 US dollar costs and damages that society has to, and, and the future generations, in the end, it's our children who have to uh, pay the bill for that, you know. so. If you include that, uh, usually you could actually argue it's uh, 350 US dollar per ton, uh, per, uh, yeah, 350 US dollar uh, um, uh, price tag, you know, that's associated to this with those uh, two barrels uh, of, of crude oil. And uh, or other, from another perspective, if, uh, if we assume that an oil company makes just to say, you know, just a number 40 US dollar, um, you know, of net profit with these uh, two barrels sold. It's actually a loss of 150 US dollar, you know. So that and that again is being externalized, and our our uh, children and young generation have to pay for that. So this is one huge issue. Um, okay, let me just let me just come in here for yeah. a second. So um, so what what are you saying? One of the one of the key challenges are, or one of the key um, hurdles are sort of like external costs, externalized costs that are not fully sort of like taken into account by the market. And I suppose mm -hmm. what you're trying to say here inadvertently also is that as a result of it, um, say a, a green or clean tech investment um, is not necessarily quite as competitive as it could be relative to a dirty investment because of the yeah. externalities, because of the external costs. So if I'm a pension yeah. fund and I have money mm -hmm. to invest and I have to basically bear in mind that in 20, 30 years time, I have to pay out those pensions. Um, I obviously want to invest it, you know, where I get the highest return. And there is a kind of a competitive disadvantage at this point still for green yeah. and clean tech uh, uh, companies. Exactly. Is that, is that mm. fair to put it that yeah. way? So, uh, so it's uh, indeed. Um, if you think about what externalities mean, um, 
they are market failure. They mean that uh, there, for example, we talk about the green premium that exists today with some climate solution technologies. I mean, uh, if you look at wind and solar energy production, of course, uh, this is a great example where uh, the green premium has actually reversed into a competitive advantage thanks to you know cost reductions over the past couple of years. But uh, there are still sub several solutions that are much more you know, uh, at a competitive advantage, um, a disadvantage compared to fossil fuels, and it's not necessary. So the green premium, if you would account for the social, you know, cost and damages of fossil fuels, uh, would turn into the reverse, you know. So um, what, what it means is that we have economic incentives currently provided by market pricing signals, you know, that are pointing at the wrong direction. They're rewarding you know, fossil fuel extraction and exploration, it's much more profitable than it should ever, never, ever be allowed, you know, to be. On the other hand, uh, you know, um, climate solutions and uh, low carbon solutions are not as, you know, competitive as they are supposed to be or could be. So, yeah, and this is, we have to deal with this, right? So unless we change uh, and uh, address uh, the market failure head on, which requires um, you know, a combination of regulation and or standards uh, and uh, pricing of externalities. So, and climate policies. So, it's a very, you know, broad toolbox actually available to address uh, these, these market failures, but has to, has to really um, show up in, you know, in the end, uh, in incentives, in economic incentive structures uh, or obligations and duties that are really clearly defined. You know, otherwise, and this is what I see as a, as a huge challenge. Um, as long as we try to address these market failures with, you know, voluntary measures, creating more transparency, more disclosure, which is, which is, you know, which was good decades ago, but now it's far from enough, you know, to effectively uh, address this. When, when, right. when you look at investment, um, from my sort of like very limited understanding of investment, um, there's, there's broadly speaking, sort of two factors that you would take into account. There's the competitiveness and implicit in that the margins that you could expect in a particular industry, in a particular segment. But then there's, yeah. so, so there's that kind of side of it, like, you know, you know, the, the kind of the return that you can achieve today. But then there's also, of course, the growth projection. In other words, the sort of the, the assumption how that market will develop over time. Mm. Uh, so, uh, and both in terms of competitiveness, but also just in terms of sheer market size and volume, trading volume. Mm. So, um, so, so, so when you, again, it takes take solar or take, take, uh, take, take wind energy, um, what kind of constraints that market isn't just, as you said, they now have an economic advantage over many fossil fuel propositions and indeed over nuclear as well. But at yeah. the same time, um, their growth potential is limited by regulatory restraints. In other words, of course, oh. we're now mm. lift, beginning to lift those because we were desperate for yeah. more electricity, but they're, they're traditionally the sort of thing. So, so, so there's a whole other area, and you may want to say something about the regulatory side of things that yeah. constrain investment as well. Uh, yeah, indeed. I mean, it's a good, a good and valid point, and it's true that also um, regulation uh, can, uh, you know, lead to the opposite effect and uh, uh, slow down um, the renewable energy expansion or you know electrification decarbonization in general and uh, in fact that also um, if you look at the regulatory frameworks uh, today and in the past uh, they could have been much better you know they could have been 
designed in a more effective way to accelerate uh, rather than slowing their own expansion, right? So um, we, of course, and so this is also why regulation needs to be um, well uh, implemented. It needs to be, you know, but it's just, it's, it's a technicality, I would argue, right? It's something that you can look at um, from, a, from a good effective design perspective. Uh, there's a best practices, there's a lot of experience uh, available, how to, you know, not to, uh, uh, how to actually, um, in the end, uh, create the, uh, realize the potential, you know, and, and uh, uh, the results that you want to see that were intended rather than unintended, uh, you know, negative consequences as we have seen so often. So yes, um, and um, another aspect of that is uh, also, I haven't mentioned this yet, uh, subsidies, you know, so subsidies also for the totally wrong thing, which is, you know, fossil fuel subsidies uh, are um, to some extent, uh, Certainly, uh, from a social justice perspective, we need to be careful with phasing those out, and uh, um, you know, ma making sure that uh, there is no undue, um, you know, hardship associated. But a large part of subsidies is also, um, I would say, not more, more, can, can be phased out much more easily if we really wanted to. Uh, yeah, and so this also leads us further down. And if we look at the root cause analysis, and uh, so we have market failure. We have, uh, uh, on the other hand, we could address market failure through um, effective, well-designed regulation, but we also have regulatory failure. Um, at least if you look back the past you know, few decades, uh, we haven't really managed to address uh, market failure effectively. So, um, and there are various reasons also why our political systems uh, were not um, well equipped or you know, capable of, um, uh, implementing, uh, you know, the, the regulatory measures, right? Climate policies, strong climate policies, um, and part of that is certainly a huge amount of, you know, uh, misinformation. Um, think tanks that have been funded by the fossil fuel industry and special interests and lobbying efforts, right? That were uh, also, mm, you know, actually working against the, the democracy and the capability of the state to address market failure. Well, that, that 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 that's a big area, and that's a sort of a kind of a, yeah. a, a massive impact, isn't it? But it's almost sort of sort of a, an indirect impact. It impacts so many other areas as well. Uh, but, um, and but it, but it, it clearly, you know, there, there's almost a sort of a strong correlation between the amount of capital that, that is invested in a particular interest and the degree mm -hmm. of lobbying, the, the amount of lobbying that kind of is sort of mm -hmm. allocated to that. And of course, it's such a huge capital investment that has been undertaken over the over decades into, into the fossil fuel industry. It, it's a bit like, but much more extremely than that, a bit like tobacco, but more extreme mm. than that. And then of course yeah. it takes it takes it takes an awful lot to kind of to counterbalance that. Um, mm. Now, of course, impact investing operates within this rather imperfect world. Um, mm. And uh, and so so and it's still trying to make a difference. Now my sense is is that it's a bit like it's to do. It's almost a bit like you know, if there's enough slack, if there's enough good opportunities, beefy opportunities around, then you know none of these kind of imperfections matter too much because there's enough fish that you can catch. But it's it's when 
when when the market gets the the market of good opportunities gets sort of saturated in a way then the regulatory and the sort of financial arrangements really do matter because they can increase the size of and 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 and, and the quantity of fish in that pond um so 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 in a way um where are we at the moment with sort of um uh, impact investing how Mm. how opportunity rich um, is, is is the kind of current investment environment from your perspective? Uh, is there still a lot of scope for investment uh, for impact investment to grow organically within the current constraints, or are we at a point now soon where we really mm. have to broaden and extend the envelope? Yeah. Um, so it's a it's a mixed picture, of course. There is some scope, um, and uh, maybe just quickly for uh, in general, you know. Um, uh, to, to clarify what impact investing, how, how we would define impact investing. Uh, it's um, a practice uh, or you know, uh, investment um, approach uh, where you try to address a societal uh, challenge. You try to contribute to, you know, it's, uh, um, to companies or assets that uh, address this challenge. Um, uh, and you do this intentionally with a clearly defined strategy in advance. And it's also uh, documented, you know, ideally. And, uh, you um, uh, uh, you take positive and negative real world impacts into account, and this is important. It's an important distinction uh, compared to conventional ESG investing practice, which is mostly concerned about anything that's financially material and um, may not include or is not is now does not extend to all you know kinds of uh, real life um, uh, real world impacts, right? So um, and then you also and this is another important piece. Uh, you actively uh, measure and manage uh, your real world impact uh, with that capital. So this is a rather you know ideal description of, of impact investing. And in the practice, uh, there are lots of uh, variations. And uh, uh, but uh, I think what they all have in common is a focus on um, you know net positive real world impact. And um, so when you uh, when you look at the opportunities that uh, are available um, and uh, um, it's, it's depending a lot on the uh, efficiency um, at which uh, capital markets operate. And especially in developing, in developed uh, capital markets, they are rather you know, efficient, but not perfect. And there is, you know, there are opportunities uh, clearly um, where um, positive impact assets um, are likely undervalued or underappreciated. Um, so these are, uh, very very nice opportunity to take advantage of, and and moreover in you know more frontier or developed you know low income country um, capital markets those tend to be much more inefficient. So there are much more opportunities of uh, profitable you know positive impact assets. But um, uh, also we spoke earlier about market failure, regulatory failure, and uh, um, so clearly the scope is limited. In the end, we have to remind ourselves, you know. What matters um, uh, is uh, there are several uh, funding gaps. There's a SDG funding gap that is quite, quite uh, you know, um, well known. I think uh, there also a climate finance gap, uh, which is um, um, astounding, immense. You know, because when you think about, I think most recent estimates of uh, climate finance volumes globally are around 900 billion US dollar. But the needs, um, you know, the estimated uh, needed capital um, allocations by 2030 per year are more closer to 4.3 
you know, trillion US dollars by the Climate Policy Initiative. Um, so more than quadruple uh, the current award. And then also the IEA makes um, uh, estimates that uh, we need to, you know, substantially increase current allocations. And so the question we ask ourselves is how can we close this gap? Again, you know, this is not something that you can close by simply creating more transparency because the market failure is so huge that it requires um, a complete, you know, uh, shift in the market where you open up the opportunity space of investable assets uh, by making positive impact assets more profitable and negative impact assets less profitable, less attractive, you know, by various ways, right? So pricing or standards or mandates, whatever. Uh, but it has to, in the end, affect the bottom line. It has to be um, compatible with uh, investors' mandates, right? So um, there are uh, various, you know, we are currently operating within a, a legal framework where we have a, a clear fiduciary duty, although arguably there's some ambiguity about what it means, how it can be operationalized uh, in a time of a climate crisis, how far it extends, right? So this, there's actually ambiguity. Um, and we have, but we also have a clear um, social norm of a primacy of shareholder value. And so these are, you know, um, very deeply embedded uh, imperatives or constraints within which especially institutional investors who, you know, um, um, have, a, have a duty uh, to, you know, properly, carefully manage uh, uh, um, the assets that have been entrusted to them. So they're not private wealth holders. When you're a private wealth holder, you can do, can decide by yourself what you want to do with your own wealth. But, um, you know, this, is, this is makes a huge difference uh, when you have to meet financial performance expectations. So then, you know, the market basically provides opportunities for you as in this current design. And if you want to close funding gaps, this is where we have to, you know, intervene and, and change. So um, just, just um, for my own benefit, but also the benefit of, of our viewers and listeners, um, what, what, what's a sort of, uh, what is a sort of a kind of, if you like, a basket of investments in, in, in your industry look like? I mean, how does that look different from, I mean, what I'm trying to get to is, 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 is um, uh, you know, um, intuitively I would think, oh, most sort of green or, or, or clean investment opportunities are sort of new industries. Of course, they don't have to be, you know, as we know, you know, uh, but, but, but so there's a sort of a sense that this would be newer industries as opposed to the old heavy industries, which would be oh, like yeah, and so on and yeah. so forth. Um, so what, what, what are we including here? Are we including, you know, software development? Are we including consultancy? Are we including, well, you know, pharmaceuticals? Are we, what, what are the kind of companies? What does a basket of uh, investments uh, in, your, in your sector look like? I mean, just as well, a sort of to get a sense of yeah. what kind of companies yeah. we're looking at here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, also in the end, uh, <clears throat> I, um, especially with uh, when it comes to decarbonization, uh, Indeed, actually, there is an um, um, uh, you know industry uh, almost disruptive um, uh, trend happening where uh, new challenger companies uh, with um, you know uh, climate solution products and services, low carbon products and services, are uh, typically substituting and replacing incumbent uh, companies. So, so there's a mix, right? Uh, either they are uh, replacing, you know, gaining market share over you know, fossil fuel based uh, products and services, 
uh, or uh, the incumbents uh, are capable of transforming you know their business models and their product offerings um, quickly enough to stay in the game so basically but in my, you know the history yeah, of, my... of market dynamics there shows that there's usually um uh, you know a shift happening of of new companies getting market share i, I remember from my, my old days at, at, at business school we, we, we you know there's this distinction between sort of comp- like in terms of competitive advantage in terms of cost advantage versus sort of yeah. differentiation advantage in other words uh, do you compete uh, on cost or do you compete on some other Along some other dimension it could be quality, uh-huh. it could be whatever, and of course yeah. within the, yeah. the the kind of climate kind of industry, mm. if you like, um, cost might be a factor. You know that that, that a more cost competitive uh, company comes up and does the same thing, but does it cheaper? But it may also be that there's a company coming up that basically makes us feel better about you know what it does or how it does yeah. it. So in terms of <laughs> how, how mm. does that how, how does that industry mix yeah. look like is yeah. this is this competition yeah. on cost mainly or is it on differentiation what, what, yeah. what, what's the mix unfortunately differentiation by by quality or you know climate better superior climate impact is is very limited i would say i mean you have uh, in, within consumer markets maybe some consumers and an increasing share of consumers actually yeah. are willing to pay more for you know, good quality, good impact. Uh, but um, it's um, uh, when you look at the whole value chain, uh, cost competitiveness, and you know, in the end, yeah. it's about pricing, prices, your margins, how they are affected by. If you want to purchase a more costly or more, you know, highly priced product, you uh, it's very difficult to okay. um, to get this. You know, so this is also why it's so important to make it mandatory. You know, it's it's um, it's nice beginning. It's nice to start with to internally. For example, apply carbon pricing also to support strategic decision making, where you want to invest next, what which one you want to prioritize in the anticipation of um, increased uh, you know carbon pricing, uh, more stringent and uh, more ambitious carbon pricing in the future that is going to be mandatory, right? So you're anticipating that and you're already applied, and actually this might give you uh, should give you a competitive advantage, but um, without that, uh, if it's most you know uh, industries uh, um, it's so important to be price competitive and so this is you know uh, this is also why uh, the, there has been a fundamental shift when it came to um, solar and wind uh, power generation at least in developed markets you know so this is where uh, the the you know they became price competitive even superior um, highly profitable attractive uh, assets uh, on the other hand in the developed world or in the developing you know world in um, uh, low-income countries and so on capital costs due to inefficient capital markets tend to be too high and uh, you know in spite of cost advantage technologically um, it's still you know economically not not feasible or at least the perception is also there it's not feasible to to massively scale and expand renewable energy so this is uh, something we, we also need to urgently address um, right and uh, uh, this is there also there are also interesting approaches and uh, promising approaches to um, came coming out of uh, you know COP twenty seven. There's uh, at least a little silver lining, I think, uh, for example, with the Bridgetown agenda. So it's something that is a positive note on a in general very frustrating you know uh, again a failed attempt uh, at finding a consensus decision or a solution. But um, at least. Uh, you know, it has been recognized that um, uh, blended finance models are needed. Uh, 
you know, capital cost differences between developed and developing markets have to be uh, addressed if we want to scale renewable energy uh, globally, right? So, but the difference between, so price competitiveness is key. And, uh, you know, this is a nice metaphor of a, of a cube of, um, you know, ice, uh, which changes its uh, state, uh, depending on whether it's zero degrees or slightly above zero degrees. So it's, a, you know, a, a marginal change in matter of temperature degrees, but it makes, you know, it changes the whole aggregate status also, you know, from ice to liquid. And uh, as we know, liquid is flows much easier, you know, so <laughs> same with capital becomes yeah, yeah. Uh, much easier to, to go where it's needed and where it's actually profitable. This so, is where capital um, goes. If you if you uh, if if you look at the the, the you know the the kind of investment area that that, that you're in, um, would you would you call it sort of climate investing or would you call it green tech green tech or would you call it what, what, what's the overall term they use for that kind of investment area? Yeah, call it, I would call it climate impact investing with a particular um, strategic uh, impact uh, uh, emphasis on. Uh, you know, uh, contributing to reduce, avoid, or remove the greenhouse gas emissions, while you know, may also taking into account um, other uh, positive and negative real-world impacts, uh, trying to manage those two. But the overarching impact goal is also um, clear, clearly defined, or it's part of the race to zero. That uh, so, so if, in, you, yeah. if, if you take that sort of segment of the investment market and compare it to other segments in terms of return on investment, would, would you come in? Are you sort of like, are you not your own company now, but, you know, yeah. your sector in general? Are you generating yeah. sort of like above, you know, like, you know, super normal returns or yeah. below average returns? Would you come in in terms of uh, sort of return on investment? Yeah, there's a high variability and also um, it's quite uh, dynamic. And, uh, you know, when you look at uh, the wind power industry in Europe, it has uh, uh, been, um, you know, it's, it's curious uh, with the huge, you know, increasing demand. And uh, you saw, you also see regulatory uh, tailwinds, you know, why is it that the wind industry is struggling? But of course, we have also a variety of, uh, of, of currently, you know, of, of um, of challenges and you have supply chain disruptions and uh, you know long-term contracts that didn't account for uh, the recent uh, dynamics and shifts. So, um, but in the long in the long run, um, you know we are currently uh, at the early stages of um, I'm sure of that. You know industrial revolution or you know a, a, a historic uh, shift uh, of you know how we um, reconfigure our energy system and. Uh, of how our economy um, also uh, operates, uh, or you know, there's going to be um, something that we will be in unprecedented times, right? So we haven't seen this kind of um, uh, you know shift uh, at this scale and at the pace yet. Still, it's not fast enough, of course, as we you know found out the climate finance gap is huge, but also within that you have uh, technological development that is helping. You have a lot of you know market pressure, you have regulatory pressure, it's all currently in a process of, um, you know, uh, uh, reconfiguration and uh, um, sooner or later, hopefully sooner rather than later, you know, it's it's going to push and increase um, 
the speed and the pace and scale at which we are currently deploying and you know changing, transforming our industry. Um, yeah, so so and this is creating opportunities, new markets, right? So this is creating um, this uh, substitution um, uh, uh, dynamics uh, that, I, that I mentioned earlier, um, and so and within that, there's a variety of different you know uh, opportunities to. Um, uh, position yourself and uh, within those value chains and so on. So clearly, uh, every you know the whole industry will grow quickly uh, and uh, be profitable and increasingly profitable with economies of scale. But there will be a lot of also variation within that. And other industries might be you know have been historically profitable, uh, but uh, they are also challenged by the new you know times, the new uh, uncertainties that we uh, see ahead. I mean, I mean, like you know. There can't be few sort of sectors, investment sort of segments, uh, where politics plays a greater role. In a sense that you know, the climate is very much at the kind of, at the center of public discourse, not only in Germany but you know certainly across Europe and to a lesser degree, but still also in North America. And um, so. In terms of assessing investment opportunities, of course, and this brings us on to the, 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 the next question, um, I, I guess one competitive advantage that a investment advisory would have or a investor would have is a, a, you know, a, sort of a proximity, a closeness uh, to the political machinery. Because of course, the, the better I understand how far away we are from certain you know, regulatory improvements or changes, obviously that has such a massive impact mm. on investment opportunity mm. in this sector mm. that it would, to me, appear to be probably one of the biggest advantages you can have. Um, uh, now, um, how, how, how critical is that seen within the investment community? Is there, is there an awareness of it? Are you sort of climate investors becoming big lobbyists at the same time? <laughs> how, how does that, what, what's yeah. that relationship between the investment community you're a part of and, 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 and the governments and political mm. parties around the world. What's, what's that relation? Because to me, that seems to be a really a critical interface. Yeah, well, I would, I would um, uh, you know, basically uh, take a little step back and argue that it's uh, in, in general uh, an imperative for, for civil society at large, you know, for us people and uh, in our different roles, whether we are, um, investors, uh, you know, voters, uh, citizens, um, you know, employees, uh, employers, or owners, wealth owners, and so on, uh, philanthropists as well. So various roles uh, um, by which we can uh, contribute to accelerating the transition through, you know, um, advocacy, uh, through um, helping and supporting uh, policymakers to make the right choices uh, in spite of um, uh, a huge, I think in the past often underestimated the uh, change resistance also coming from, of course, interest groups that uh, want to maintain the status quo. Let me, uh, let me rephrase the question. Yeah. Let me rephrase yeah. the question. I mean, it's, it's quite common knowledge that the fossil fuel industry is very heavily invested in think tanks. And it is a yeah. way in which the fossil fuel industry channel, channels 
vast yeah. sums of money uh, into anything from elections uh, to uh, political consultancy uh, to media manipulation right through the fake news. I mean, there's a massive um, kind of like lobby, but in the broadest sense of the word, uh, that is essentially, you know, kind of making the case for fossil fuels. Now, it, yeah. it, 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 you know, my, my sense is that if you really want to compete with fossil mm. fuel, yeah. you have yeah. to, in a way, take them on where the money is. And yeah. not, not you personally, I don't mean it that way, but you know what I'm saying? So yeah. the, the kind of yeah. the, the kind of the investment uh, lobby that is behind you would have as vested an interest in doing the same thing, except well, like for a different yeah. cause. Okay. Is, that, is that happening yeah. or are we still yeah. leaving yeah. The, the playing field entirely to the fossil fuel industry? In other words, are clean yeah. tech and green and climate investors yeah. are beginning yeah. to funnel money in the same way as the, uh, you know, the, the, the petrochemical industry does, or are we not doing it because we're kind of too good for that? Uh, no, I mean, it's, uh, the, uh, I sense at least an increasing level of awareness. Uh, it's, uh, um, and there is, for example, uh, an initiative called the Investor Agenda. And you can look it up and it, it, actually, I like, mm -hmm. uh, I like also their uh, advocacy work and it's also combining various groups. So within the investor community, um, you have the, you know, um, uh, Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance, Net Zero Asset Managers Alliance, you have, uh, you know, um, uh, IIGCC and so on. So various groups that uh, are serious, uh, have a shared interest in um, accelerating uh, the, you know, low carbon transition. Uh, and they're, they're, they're finding their voice and they're also putting it forward. So um, this is happening at least uh, in the, um, uh, so there's no, no let's say, you know, there's maybe uh, a challenge for the larger, you know, institutions that um, uh, have uh, also, of course, uh, that are like large banks that have historically financed fossil fuel projects and uh, struggle to, you know, um, uh, to really uh, uh, implement uh, strong, you know, phase out policies to stop financing fossil fuels. These are highly profitable projects, you know, there's a strong uh, internal lobby, I assume, to that's uh, uh, lots of interest. And so politics is happening too, especially in large institutions, right? And so, um, but looking from outside, uh, you know, uh, they, they have been uh, not, uh, it's disappointing, right? That they have been not as um, consistent uh, compared to the net zero pledges that they made. And, uh, you know, then there's some, some kind of uh, uh, relatively weak uh, policy on not funding thermal coal or something, but it's, you know, leaving loopholes. Uh, in the end, gas projects are still being funded. And the question is also, is this the right way to, you know, voluntarily um, uh, pledge not to finance something when you have huge market pressure, pressure by customers and other interest groups in turn, you know, the shareholders who want you to perform uh, economically, uh, and so the, I would argue the, the leverage point is somewhere else, you know, where you work uh, together with policymakers to make these, you know, fossil fuel projects just much more expensive or face them out prematurely. Um, there are various ways to, um, rather than voluntarily expect institutions to change their behavior. Right? And of course, there's so a big difference because of course, the, yeah. you know, the, the, the fossil fuel industry 
uh, would be engaged in defensive behavior. So there would be there would be this would be about maintaining a sort of outdated status quo. Uh, you know, it, it it would it would mandate to keep investing in the building of roads or into whatever it might be, like into right. fossil fuel driven industries. Uh, whereas you know what we're talking about is not defensive. But it's actually kind of progressive, you know. So, so this is, of course, it requires a different set of approaches. I totally get that, and it also is, in some ways, much more difficult because you can. It's much easier to defend than it is to attack. Mm. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. it is the same in chess. It's the same in, 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 like, on the battlefield, and it's the same. It's much easier to defend a position than to basically kind of take a position. Um, so, 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 so clearly, we we are, if you like, at a kind of competitive disadvantage against the defenders of the old. Um, but, but there is this kind of there is this fundamental question because we're coming on now to the next thing. Um, in 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 your kind of little write up, you sort of said that there need to be strategic modifications yeah. Yeah. Uh, to yeah. um, to our sort of like regulatory and financial systems. And clearly, yeah. one would. One would hope that if it was very clear what these modifications ought to be, wow. that one mm. would be able to kind of generate enough support behind that, you know, so that you need to know what to kind of aim for first, so that mm. you then can channel, you know, funding and also brain power yeah. and, and, and mobilize yeah. and so forth, you know, around these around these demands. So mm. um so, so this is this is in a way, of course, what what we what what the next piece of work has to be, I suppose, is mm. to to agree on what these modifications should be. And I think you have a take on this. Mm. So maybe just give yeah. us a sort of a broad sort yeah. of overview of what you think right. would need to happen mm. uh, for, for impact investing to be more effective and to help us accelerate that transition to a, a negative carbon economy. Yeah. Right. I think it's important to first uh, recognize that um, we are, um, uh, have run out of time, right? So time is of the essence and in the interest of time. So we need to think uh, in um, uh, near term, mid term, meaning the next uh, 30 years uh, ahead and then longer term, you know, 100 years, 200 years ahead. And this is the time when the actually more uh, fundamental paradigmatic and cultural shifts uh, can happen. Uh, I mean, Interestingly, when you consider uh, the possibility of social tipping points, which is giving some hope, you know, changes can also happen much faster than we uh, might anticipate across, you know, within one generation even. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, what I think what I'm arguing for in the interest of time are relatively, relatively um, limited uh, interventions or, you know, modifications of the of the current system aiming at, you know, trying to uh, redirect uh, and uh, with in, you know keeping uh, the you know market failures in mind that we had uh, mentioned uh, described earlier, how to redirect uh, the forces of markets and technology development so that they serve effectively serve the interim goal of reaching net zero before 2050, and then negative emissions a negative emissions economy uh, after that. And this is uh, something that we also we need to expand our time horizon beyond. 2100, you know, into the um, uh, into uh, 2200, you know, in the 22nd century. Um, but for now, interest of uh, for the next uh, 30 years, uh, what is it? What we can do um, pragmatically? So one is uh, rapidly ramp up uh, climate uh, finance volumes. Um, you know, when thinking of um, uh, there's an interesting work by by Mariana Matsukatu who is arguing 
also for a much stronger role of, of you know, public investments, targeted, mission-driven, um, to uh, catalyze uh, private funding. Um, and we need, so the whole, uh, I mentioned the climate finance gap earlier. Could you, right? so could, so much, say, could, you, yeah. could you just elaborate a little, public investment to catalyze yeah. private funding? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I mentioned earlier the, the Bridgetown agenda as an example, you know, or uh, uh, the climate finance gap, which has needs to be closed. And I think both public and private capital plays a role, but private capital is more constrained. It's depending on risk return and financial performance um, expectations that meet the, the mandates, current the current mandates, right? And so um, how can we uh, provide that? And, and public finance uh, is not depending on, on this, you know, financial, so it can, prioritize a public uh, interest, uh, like uh, reaching, uh, winning the race to net zero, you know. But uh, that to me sounds like subsidy. Is, is that what you're talking yeah, about? Not necessarily. It's just uh, more uh, risk taking, you know, it's a more flexible capital that can be used, for example, to take out risk of projects uh, through first loss uh, terms, for example. So whenever it comes to a, a loss, uh, first it's being absorbed by the public capital tranche before private investors lose the money, right? So this is how you can um, shift the uh, uh, risk or make make uh, risky investments much more attractive. Just one example, a variety of, of ways in which public finance and capital, public capital can um, use, be used as a to catalyze, you know, to attract and crowd in uh, private capital. Um, and how can we uh, scale that? You know, this is uh, the key question, of course, uh, can, is there, on the one hand, uh, uh, underutilized, you know, some fiscal space, or is there, uh, you know, uh, actually, how are we thinking about uh, how uh, public uh, capital, you know, what role it plays and what's what's currently available? Uh, and there's an interesting example of uh, special drawing rights. You know, pro, uh, the IMF uh, is uh, also involved in supporting the idea of of utilizing that, you know, source of. Um, F capital. There's a modern monetary theory that is uh, interesting to to consider, right? And uh, there's a proposal by by uh, uh, the Global Carbon Reward Initiative that you also uh, spoke about creating a carbon currency to that end, right? So interesting ways, and I think the underutilized the potential there. Um, and the final argument, given that uh, we have, uh, you know, if you think about the immense value at at risk, uh, the damages and the that we could avoid if we successfully invested now, you know, to avoid damages in the future. Uh, there's a strong argument also to rethink how we view uh, public debt, you know, because in the current situation with the climate crisis, uh, it's not a burden for future generations if we invest now, even with that, you know, into expanding and accelerating climate solutions deployment, because it will be beneficial for future generations. And they will ask us instead, why didn't you do it? You know, so this is the kind of, um, I think, shift in our mindsets. Uh, but we're talking about very targeted strategic use of, of public debt when it's still, there's still some space uh, for well, that. I mean, right? there, there is, I mean, this is, this is a thing. It's like, you know, the, the whole thing about public debt and, and you know, um, that, that um, you're absolutely right. I think there is, there's, there's plenty of room, headroom uh, mm. for, 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 mm. for more investment. But I mean, I mean, right. we, we, you yeah. know, we have we have seen like a kind of the kind of the limits of this recently in the U, uh, in the UK, where Liz mm. Truss, with her kind of ludicrous kind of sort of tax yeah. policy, uh, yeah. really kind of crashed 
the pound yeah. and basically hiked up interest rates massively. And so there, there's clearly, I mean, capital markets will put a cap on how much money governments can sure. borrow. And yeah. I said, you're absolutely right there. There's plenty of headroom there, but it is yeah. not unlimited, you know, so. No, of um, course, of course. Yeah. The purpose needs to be clear and so on, but this is another issue. And I think there's a combination and a varied variety of sources. I mean, just imagine how much we are uh, spending every year on, um, you know, a nuclear arsenal that we hope we will never use anyways. And we have, <laughs> whether we have thousands or hundreds, uh, you know, um, uh, nuclear uh, uh, arms, uh, you know, it's a huge waste of money and resources. Unfortunately, we have, so we are clearly uh, approaching a difficult choice Either we manage to collaborate internationally, you know, as one species for our shared uh, prosperity for uh, yeah, future generations uh, um, of humanity, or we, you know, in the worst case scenario, we just um, uh, spend overspend into militarization and uh, conflict um, and over over scarce resources because we fail to mitigate, uh, you know, the the threat multiplier, which is the climate crisis. Anyways. So, so, so I know. think that, that, I mean, I, you know, from, from our, from you and from my point of view, the business case for public investment, the business case for a regulatory framework that would penalize, you know, carbon uh, and that would, you know, support uh, sort of like the transition to uh, sort of a low carbon economy. That That's absolutely strong business case as far as we're concerned. But Clearly, mm. you're going by the last climate conference in, 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 in mm. Egypt, or did you know the next one next year? Do you know where it's going to be? It's, it's, it's an absolute joke. It's going to be UAE, in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Jesus. UAE, UAE. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. somebody is not, did, is anybody taking this serious? I mean, you know, this, this is a real, there's a real problem there. Um, so, I mean, the, apart from the fact that for some reason, I mean, I mean, when you look at what the the, the the German government, you know, which has the Green Party in government, what what, what they are doing, um, you know, it's 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 you know, it's 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 unbelievable, you know, uh, building gas terminals that that may not be will not be used for another five years, but caving into all kinds of like lobbies who are now see a huge opportunities to expand. Uh, both fossil fuel and 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 we're kind of you know we have a green like certainly a green component and and nothing's happened. So if if, if the Green Party in Germany can somehow stand against this again mm -hmm. you know against this sort of flow yeah. against yeah. this uh, you know who can yeah. I mean what 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 are in, in your opinion and what is holding mm -hmm. up uh, you know these fundamental changes that clearly need to happen? What, yeah. what is what is kind of like holding this back? Yeah. Before we continue, so there are four points that I wanted to make, but uh, maybe just briefly on that. Uh, I think part of the challenge has been that the business case or the investment case uh, for you know early investments in in climate finance and climate mitigation in particular for um, uh, you know extreme or immense amounts of, of avoided damages and co benefits and and growth, jobs creation and so on, green growth or quality growth. You know. Uh, something that is uh, can also be managed continuously to become more sustainable and has to be managed to do so um, has been underestimated or it wasn't really I think there's still uh, ambiguity around this um, the the clear you know net net benefits and welfare creation of successful climate mitigation which requires uh, upfront <laughs> investments now right and uh, and as long as this ambiguity persists, uh, uh, it's not a, you know, a consensus, part of our consensus reality will be very, I think it will be very difficult. So we need to find, you know, create increasing 
awareness uh, for the, you know, uh, as long as the window of opportunity is still open and uh, it's it's closing and we need to be fast and move fast, but uh, creating awareness for the, you know, clear uh, uh, positive cost benefit case uh, requires, you know, also um, updating our views on uh, the damages and risks of uh, the, you know, climate crisis. I think those are still also varying a lot uh, in, the, in the population, not as much in the science, but, you know, in the population uh, for sure. No, but uh, just to, to, to close and continue, you know, there's one thing is investing uh, for, you know, climate impact and increasing climate finance volumes publicly and privately. Uh, but also part of it is, is pricing, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions aggressively, right? Um, it's, it's a very key tool within our toolbox. It's not the only tool and by itself it's not sufficient. And I would argue it's not even sufficient just to make uh, fossil fuel uh, based, you know, greenhouse gas emissions more expensive, but we also need to make climate mitigation performance and uh, avoid it and reduce and remove the emissions more, you know, financially attractive projects that are nature-based solutions, for example, or those that you currently find on the voluntary carbon market at very, you know, marginal prices per ton of, of, of carbon uh, performance, uh, uh, those need to be uh, supported and scaled and so on. And uh, this is what also the positive, uh, you know, view on, on, on carbon pricing uh, can do, right? I mean, I think, uh, one, incentives one of, yeah, think yeah. you know, one of the big problems, of course, is, is, is that we, like in, in, in Europe, um, especially in sort of Northern Europe, uh, we're in this kind of climate privilege bubble. So, you know, much of the negative impacts of climate change actually happen elsewhere, yeah. uh, whilst we continue to be one of the major contributors to the problem. Um, so and there, is, there is this kind of disconnect between sort of like the, the causes of climate change and the, 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 the effects of climate change. And, and whilst we're kind of heavily involved in the causing of climate change, we don't really get so much of the impact of it. Um, and so, um, how, how, what kind of strategies exist to kind of basically pull people out of this climate privilege bubble, um, you know, to burst it early whilst not yeah. all the damage has been done? Is there, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that kind of problem that, that, you know, we're causing it, but we don't feel it? Mm. I mean, another uh, positive aspect of, of COP27 was certainly uh, the acknowledgement of loss and damages, you know, of, of um, uh, uh, you know, various low-income countries being disproportionately exposed to climate risks, you know, vulnerable to extreme weather events and so on. And so these are risks that also have become uninsurable, right? Or uh, there's clearly, uh, there's some kind of, um, you know, justice issue at hand, uh, not just intergenerationally, but also globally, you know, um, uh, it's a it's a tough ethical challenge that requires uh, you know also changing our view on uh, development cooperation and how much we are willing to spend on the one hand you know supporting um, transition and low carbon economies uh, um, uh, and on the other hand also increasing uh, loss and damage uh, facilities and finance and so on and especially in uh, you know, um, also reconstruction, resilient reconstruction and climate positive reconstruction after after climate disaster events, right? So uh, this is going to continue. Right? And uh, part of the third uh, aspect I would, uh, um, uh, you know, bring forward uh, ties into this or can be combined because I would argue for an improved legal standing for nature and future generations, which is currently 
comparatively too too weak. And uh, we, if if with an improved legal standing, um, it's I think those climate litigation um, uh, charges could be much more successful, uh, and especially internationally and so on. And uh, I think there's also the case, of course, for an improved legal standing of vulnerable, you know, nation states that are currently disproportionately affected, right? Um, so, so our our international legal system uh, needs uh, urgently needs an overhaul, and needs to. And this would be a sign of human progress, right? To be capable of dealing with these intergenerational and global justice issues through a legal system, you know, that that honors um, our duties and responsibilities. <laughs> You know, I think one of the things that and I, I personally sort of see this as one of the, 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 the major hurdles uh, as well. And it, it, to me, it became very apparent, like during the, the, the climate conference COP27 in, in Egypt. And also the actual outcome reflects that very directly for me. It's a sort of a total breakdown or absolute absence of trust. Um, mm. And now there's, there's a huge problem, of course, in that, because wherever there's a first move at disadvantage or whether there is any of these kinds of you know, or whether there is some kind of like investment in a shared or common future, you know, like th these are areas where trust is absolutely essential. And, and, and of course, what we've seen at COP27 with this kind of sort of sort of it's a headline agreement uh, on a loss and damage fund, which I personally think is a, is, is a disaster. I mean, I know everybody's celebrating and thinks it's great, but I think what it does is that, so the poor people now have their own fund and who's gonna put money in? Are we really going to do that? Well, let's see. If we would instead have, if we would have reformed the World Bank, the IMF, if we would have basically made these climate compliant, we would have had a much bigger win, but it would have yeah. been again our institutions and not theirs. And so the, I think there's a real problem there. And I don't know how we're going to address that, that trust issue. And it exists within countries, within yeah. Germany, that we don't trust our politicians anymore on the subject. Yeah. It happens between yeah. countries and really at a global scale between North and South. Um, and uh, to me, that is a fundamental problem at the beginning yeah. of a real crisis. Yeah. Two, two aspects uh, or two thoughts. Uh, I think it's really worthwhile to look uh, more into the Bridgestone agenda, which is also including uh, uh, reform uh, of the IMF and other institutions. So the financial global architecture, you know, so this is also what, what makes it so appealing. It still has to, of course, uh, come to pass, right? Uh, but it's worthwhile uh, fighting for, you know, uh, as a proposal, it's now stands there. And the other part is, uh, you know, uh, you spoke about the lack of trust, but I would argue we need a stronger shared identity, you know, as uh, members of a human species with uh, sitting in the same boat, uh, sharing the same planet, uh, right? To being uh, also parents. Except, of course, we don't. This is exactly, you know, except, except <laughs> we don't because yeah. they really basically carry the lion's share of the problem, whereas we can have most of the benefits. It is unfortunately, you know, like totally lopsided in that way at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and so kind of having that lopsidedness then makes it very difficult to sort of say we're all the same boat. I, you know, I, you know, uh, because obviously we're not at the moment, you know. I mean, if yeah. you look at what happened in Pakistan, I mean, if that would happen in Germany, well, actually the whole Germany would have been flooded if that would have been Germany. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, these kinds of disasters on a massive scale, they kind of almost pass us by here in Europe. Well. Yeah, although I think they will also affect us, uh, but maybe not at the same, you know, uh, intensity. But you will certainly uh, feel it, and uh, there will be huge uh, economic 
damage is associated with this, but still, right? It's it's um, you know we are, we are all sitting in the same boat, but affected to varying degrees indeed. Final point about uh, you know fossil fuels uh, being very targeted about uh, uh, supply and demand uh, production, not so phasing phasing out fossil fuels, not only from the production side, but especially from the demand side. You know, we have to do both at the same time. That's a part of the challenge. Um, and this is the opportunity that we missed at COP27, you know, putting in the language that would allow us to address tackle fossil fuels. But there are, but there are also various uh, other initiatives. So no one said we have to limit ourselves to, you know, COP27 as the uh, main catalyst for, for global, you know, uh, climate action. Uh, there's uh, the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, for example, uh, and uh, um, you know when it comes to phasing out or phasing down uh, fossil fuel demand and uh, uh, production. So you see these these measures interact because pricing carbon would also certainly help with that. So either through legal mandate or uh, through pricing carbon. There's another very interesting recent study by the IMF. Uh, again, you know IMF from I think June or July this year where they estimated the net. Uh, present value of uh, completely phasing out uh, coal energy generation and replacing it with renewable energy generation and estimating a net benefit of, of something like immense, you know, uh, 78 trillion US dollars um, until the end of the century, uh, cumulatively. But, uh, you know, it's a it's still this part of the why the business case should be clearer. You know, these are we underestimated the, the damages um, that we could avoid uh, for a long time. Unfortunately, there's another it's another part or another you know uh, uh, meeting that we could have about that. But uh, um, we are now getting to more realistic uh, estimates. In, uh, finally, I would argue even a social cost of carbon estimate of 190 tons, you know, per US dollar. It's based on various projections, um, scenarios, and so on. But typically, all these scenarios don't account for secondary effects like uh, nuclear conflict, you know, uh, uh, collapsing economies, failed states, which uh, have economic damages that you can't imagine possibly, right? How can you model those? But um, they're also part of the immense risks that we are taking, uh, but difficult to put into a number. So 190 US dollar per ton. It's even very conservative, but that's let me, uh, as, as a very last question, uh, let me ask you, a, uh, um, and you can answer this in a very general way. Uh, I, I know that you couldn't possibly be specific about the answer to that question, but um, it, it, it sort of is obviously a question that one would want to ask somebody like you. If I had some money to spare, where would I invest it today? Hmm. Uh, Oh, difficult general answer, you know, in climate solutions, look at Project Drawdown. There Could it be are, a bit more specific? You know, I mean, would you would, <laughs> would you invest it in a, in, in, yeah. in a startup? Would you invest it in a kind ah, of fund? Ah, yeah, yeah. Well, I would want to make sure that uh, you are funding new projects, uh, fresh, uh, you know, uh, so that the assets also uh, receive the capital directly rather than you know, purchasing stocks, for example. So you have a greater impact potential by helping, you know, new deployment and infrastructure to emerge, yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. This has been really, really interesting. 
Yang Yin, we definitely continue that conversation yeah. um, at the moment, but let's see how this goes. My sense is that it probably is a good idea to have like a sort of a catch up once a year. And mm. if something happens in between, we can do a spontaneous session. But so then we kind of over the next couple of years, yeah. get a sort of a kind of a narrative going of how this industry develops and how yeah. the shape of the industry changes uh, of the impact investing industry. Um, and so to have that as a sort of an ongoing thing, and if in between things happen, we can just an interview to on specific topics that as we see fit. How does that make sense? Let's do that. Sounds good. Thank you, Nico. Well, thank you so, very, very much. It's been, as always, been really, really interesting and very illuminating. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks. <laughs> bye. Thanks. Cheers. Bye bye.